Hello and welcome. This is Luke Hunt and this is another edition of a podcast for The Diplomat. And with me today is Milton Osborne, who is certainly one of the most prolific and well-respected writers on Southeast Asian affairs, an academic and historian and a former diplomat. His uh, insights into the region, almost without peer, Milton. Lovely You're very to see. kind. You're very kind. Southeast Asia has obviously gone through enormous changes over the last 50, 60 years, going back to the start of your career and rather rapidly in the last 10, 20 years. How do you view those changes from your perch, which is extremely wide-ranging? Well, we're in a totally different world from the world I first encountered when I went to Southeast Asia in 1959. Then we still had a situation in which there were two Vietnams. The situation in Southeast Asia more generally was one in which Malaysia had only recently become independent. Indonesia was still locked in the grip of Sukarno's role, rule and role. Brunei was still a protectorate. I could go on, but uh, we now live in a totally different world with the 10 independent states of ASEAN and a great transformation in the forms of government that we can see there. Has it all been for the better? Well, I think that one would have to say that it's been for the better because uh, independence is a better state than colonisation. It's a much more complicated situation than I think is generally recognised. And in fact, from an Australian point of view, it sometimes seems to me that we have a, a much more difficult road to hoe than is usually recognised. We have very few of the countries in Southeast Asia, I'm talking from an Australian point of view, where the nature of the governments with which we deal are ones that are very much in tune with our own values. Right. I I did want to ask you about this because Australia has expressed a desire to become a part of ASEAN. And there, I think there are obvious pitfalls in there. Do you think it's a good idea for Australia to be that close or is it better to maintain uh, a healthy distance? Well, I think who the extent to which we either maintain or have a, a healthy distance is going to be as much reliant on the attitudes of the countries with which we deal as our own attitudes. But if we look through the countries of Southeast Asia at the moment, Indonesia has a democratically elected presidency. Singapore is a country with which we feel quite easily can adopt a close relationship, even though it's only a quasi-democracy. Then we start to look at the other countries of Southeast Asia. Uh, The high hopes associated with Burma or Myanmar that were held when Aung San Suu Kyi became a, a liberated politician have been deeply disappointed by the developments associated with the Rohingya crisis. Both uh, Laos and Vietnam, for all of their accessibility to tourists, are tightly controlled communist states. Cambodia, the country which I know best, is certainly an authoritarian autocracy. We have uh, a country like Malaysia, where for all of the remarkable change of government following the elections last year, You have a situation in which a substantial portion of the population, the ethnic Chinese population, does not have the same political rights as other members of the population, the Malays, the majority members. Thailand, very difficult to describe quite what Thailand is at the moment. Certainly the military maintain a control that uh, 
follows upon their coup in 2014 and the events following the elections of this year. And then there's uh, the Philippines, and again, finding the right description for the nature of the Philippines seems to me very difficult. It's certainly clear, though, that uh, under the control of the presidency of uh, Mr. Duterte, President Duterte, you have uh, this real shocking situation of extra-legal execution of people into the numbers of thousands. Right. And much has been made about the withdrawal from the region by the Americans, which I think is probably a bit too strong. But Barack Obama was accused of not paying enough attention. I think Donald Trump has had to put up with similar accusations. Does that actually add to the importance of the role that Australia plays in the region? Well, I think it adds to the role that we have to play in relation to the region. For all of the observations I've just made, we can't turn our back on the region. What I am suggesting and have been suggesting in the remarks I made was that uh, we need to take a very clear, realistic view of the region. Now, in relation to the United States, it's very interesting that because of the increasing power and reach of China, that countries that once were enemies of the United States, particularly I'm thinking of Vietnam, now are hedging their bets in relation to what's going on and seeking a closer relationship with the United States. Quite what the Philippines' relationship with the United States is, it's never quite clear. It seems to vary from week to week. On the one hand, uh, President Duterte seems to be cuddling up to China, and at other times, members of the Philippines' political class seem to want to return to the closer relationship they had in, in the past. Right. The obvious flashpoint for this is the South China Sea, and uh, the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, has said that he would like to see the reunification of Taiwan achieved on his watch. How dangerous is the situation in the South China Sea? Has it deteriorated under Xi? Oh, I think it's a very dangerous situation. Uh, for many years, uh, observers of the South China Sea looked at the Nine Dash Line and said this is just a an idea that developed after the Second World War, in fact, developed under the nationalist regime rather than uh, being closely tied to the Chinese communist regime. And then, lo and behold, the Chinese suddenly made clear that they did mean what they said about the South China Sea. And it does strike me as a very serious issue. And it's one that has developed into a, a real flashpoint, I think, if not immediately, certainly in the future. Now, I'm, I'm very reluctant to make predictions. I'm of the Yogi Berra school of, of uh, predictions, particularly right. about the future. And I'm not predicting that the flashpoint will lead to armed conflict. But the Chinese under President Xi do seem to have a determination to expand their, at their power uh, over the South China Sea without any qualifications and that does lead also to their attitude in relation to Taiwan. Right. I remember many years ago, it was probably closer to 30 years ago, when stories were coming into the newsroom about claims over the Paracel Islands and the Spratleys, and editors in the newsroom were actually laughing and mm. saying, this is something of a joke. Who's ever heard of these islands? Who cares kind of thing? Where now we're talking about 
naval engagements with uh, between Australia, Indonesia and India to contain China in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific Ocean. It certainly moved from what newspaper editors were laughing at. And now a lot of people are talking about the potential for conflict under Xi's regime over the next five to ten years. I know you don't want to look into your crystal ball, but... <laughs> no, I think we have to take account of a very different China. I have in mind, as you were just quoting about the people in the newsroom, uh, a very senior strategist, uh, internationally renowned strategist, who poo-pooed the idea that the Chinese would ever have a blue water navy Right. 30 years ago, to use the time span you adopted a moment ago. China is a very different China from what we knew of 30 years ago, let alone 60 years ago. It's powerful, it is determined, uh, it is nationalistic, and this is seen in a whole range of ways, not least in relation to the Mekong, uh, which, is an, area, which is an area that I'm particularly interested in. That's where I did plan on going next. And when you look at the downstream countries, climate change, the potential for damage to fish stocks, what's happened in countries like Cambodia over the over the last few years in terms of uh, massive development by the Chinese and the demand on water resources. How do you see the Mekong River shaping up for the future and particularly what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years in regards to dams? Well, it's a very long and complicated and disturbing story. Uh, first of all, the Chinese embarked on their great dam building program with According to calculations, either six or seven completed dams and some more being contemplated. Those dams were built without any consideration for the downstream countries. And to take just one technical aspect of that, it is possible when you're building a big dam to have a sediment flushing mechanism to get rid of the sediment that builds up. Now, when the Chinese built their first two dams at uh, Manwan and Damshashan, they suddenly found that sediment was building up. This is very important because somewhere between 80 and 90% of the sediment that flows down the Mekong River comes from China. So they built a huge dam at a place called Xiaowan, partly in accordance with the whole program of building hydroelectric dams, but also to prevent further building up of sediment in the first two dams they completed. Right. So at the moment, there is already a very severe effect of sediment being prevented from flowing down the Mekong, and that's having a particularly disturbing effect in the Mekong Delta, which has all sorts of other concerns about its future, not least uh, saltwater intrusion right. and, and climate change more generally. Now, at one level, the Chinese took absolutely no interest in what their dams were going to do to the Mekong downstream and the countries downstream, particularly in Vietnam and Cambodia. Now they have adopted a different approach and developed what they call the, the Mekong Langshan Cooperation Organization to show that they have got an interest in the Mekong. But it's not absolutely clear to me how one can define that interest, except it does seem that, in a sense, they want to make the Mekong their river. Right. And one way in which they're doing that is to have developed um, patrols on the Mekong, which effectively are Chinese gunboat patrols to protect the security of the Mekong down as far as the Golden Triangle region of, of Thailand, Laos and Burma, Myanmar. They also are talking still 
about developing the opportunity to navigate the Mekong as far as Luang Prabang. And if they were to do that, it would involve blowing up the last set of rapids that still exist in the river, uh, just by the Thai town of Cheng Kong. Now, if they were to do that, it would even further diminish the problems or diminish the availability of fish in the river. Right, and of course, in the Mekong Delta, we're talking about the livelihoods of uh, 70 million people. Well, not in, well, you're absolutely right, 70 million people and more than 50% of Vietnam's agricultural GDP. Right. And so much of the development that, that is taking place in the Mekong Delta is in fact a development that's very dangerous to its future, prawn farming on a massive scale, which sucks water out of the underlying water reserves. Mm -hmm. Just as one feature of what's happened with the Mekong Delta its Vietnamese name is, is the Kulong region, the, the Nine Dragons region. And apparently, two of those mouths into the South China Sea have already closed because the land has, has diminished and the area is no longer there. Quite possible we could be talking about the Mekong Lake. Uh... Well, uh, <laughs> there are suggestions that uh, the Delta could, in fact, effectively cease to exist by the end of the of the century. That's interesting because uh, about two years ago there was a severe drought in that lower. Mm. Droughts tend to be patchy in Southeast Asia, and there mm. was one around the Mekong Delta area. And as the water receded, the salt rose right up to the Cambodian border, which was most unusual. There was a lot of talk about people being able to walk across the Mekong in its shallow areas, and this sort of thing was unheard of before. Yes, I still have some photos that I took from helicopters flying over the Mekong Delta in the 1960s, the middle 1960s, and I've looked at those and looked at the Google uh, Earth yep. pictures of the Mekong Delta now, and it's, it's diminished quite substantially. What would be the ideal prescription? The uh, Mekong River Commission was basically gutted a few years ago when Western countries pulled out and they shifted its offices to Laos. There doesn't seem to be a lot of urgency, although I suspect the Vietnamese are quite concerned. The Cambodians have uh, basically entered a, a very close and cosy relationship with the Chinese, and they certainly are not complaining. What can be done? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer, and let me just go back a little bit in history. The, the Mekong River Commission has always been less powerful than most people recognize. Uh, when discussions took place in the 1990s to establish the Mekong River Commission and the Mekong River Agreement, which was finally reached in 1995, it was initially thought that it would be possible to have a body that could actually mandate whether or not dams could be built on the Mekong. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, was not included in the 95 agreement. And the Lao government recognized that this was so, and so they have gone ahead building their dams at Saiburi and Don Sahong, uh, which it is likely will have a very substantial and negative effect on fish stocks. Uh, the fact that you now have this alternative organization or additional organization sponsored by China is not likely to have any substantial effect on the negative events or the negative effects that have already become established in the Mekong. And it's a question now of what 
can be done to prevent even further difficulties for the future of the Mekong. Perhaps I can add just a rider here or a qualification here. We talk about the Mekong River, but there are also the Mekong tributaries. Right. And one of the very most important tributaries in Laos is the Namu River, where until about uh, 10 years ago, it was possible to travel the entire length of the river without any dams having been built. There are now seven dams on the Namu River, which has largely escaped uh, international attention. For the future, one of the issues that I think is of the greatest importance is the question of whether or not the Cambodians will build their first dam on the Mekong River proper. They've already built their dam at Saisan, yes. near the provincial capital of Stung Treng. Sambor is, uh, for a dam builder's uh, ideal, a, a good place to build a dam. The, the uh, topography suits the opportunity to build a dam there. As long ago as uh, 2001, one of the Mekong River reports said this would be the worst possible place on right. the whole of the river to build a dam. And we do not know at this stage whether the Cambodian government is seriously entertaining building a dam there or not. It's certainly uh, one of the issues that is under consideration. Well, they're certainly desperate for electricity, given what's happened over the last 12 months, where the electricity grids in Phnom Penh have been seriously challenged by overcrowding in the capital and uh, the amount of construction that's going on. It's extraordinary. And they did sign an initial agreement with Turkey to bring out a power-producing, I think, coal-fired ship to send electricity in from Sernopil. That's since been cancelled. But uh, they seem to be clutching for desperately for ideas on how to resolve mm. these problems. So, I mean, another dam will probably be built whether people think it's a good idea or not. Well, the justification for building the Lower Seisan 2 dam was to, to generate electricity because of the problems you, which have been there for some time, not the particular problems of last year, but the overall problem of electricity generation. And that dam, the experts tell me, and I'm not a fish expert, but the suggestion is that the dam that's been built near Stung Treng is likely to have an effect of diminishing fish stocks by about 10%. I mean, that's a really big number when you consider that 80% of Cambodia's annual animal protein intake comes from fish taken out of the Mekong. Right. And one of the things that is given so little attention is that alternatives to the fish that provide Cambodian protein intake are all immensely more expensive, whether you're talking about cattle or pork mm -hmm. or, or poultry. Right. They all involve greater costs, substantially greater costs. So getting some electricity and losing your fish stocks is not a good bargain. Right. And you have a new book out as well, Pol Pot solved the leprosy problem. This would be book number 14? No, no, no. Book no. number 11. 11, okay. Uh, okay, book number 11, Pol Pot solved the leprosy problem. It's a terrific title, particularly once readers understand why it was entitled that. Well, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, that it's a quote from a doctor, Dr. Lee Po, whom I met when I made my first visit back to Cambodia after the Pol Pot regime had been overthrown. And he was uh, a doctor who survived the Khmer Rouge period. Uh, he was imprisoned at one stage with 
480 people, uh, of them 53 survived. And as he showed me around his hospital in Batambang, he told me all of the problems they encountered, but ended by saying, but we don't have a leprosy problem in the, in the province anymore. Pol Pot solved the leprosy problem. He killed all the lepers. The book is a, a memoir. It goes from my first experiences in Cambodia in late 59 through to 1981 when I disappeared back into the government and it wasn't possible to be writing any books anymore for a period of nearly a dozen years. So it yep. covers my time in Cambodia, but it also covers much more than anything I've written previously. The time I spent in Vietnam in the late 60s when, by good luck, I managed to live with a Vietnamese family for some six weeks and uh, that family, a politician's family, introduced me to uh, General Chan Van Doen and General mm -hmm. Tan Da Ding. So I spent quite a lot of time traveling around Vietnam with those figures of some importance at that period. And it also focuses on the two periods I spent as a consultant to UNHCR right. when, when uh, I was involved in trying to find, first of all, some explanation for the refugee crisis of 80 and 81 and ways that it might uh, be solved by UNHCR. It sounds like a, a very focused read. Uh, one of my favourite books of all time was uh, the uh, biography you wrote on uh, King Norodom Sin or uh -huh. Prince of Light, Prince of Darkness. It was a fascinating read and I think you encapsulated a man who was on all sides of the fence and maybe not on any of them. But uh, Prince of Light, Prince of Darkness, how did that come together and how do you look back on that? I think that came out in 1994. Uh, yes, 1994. Uh, it was a book that I wrote because no one else had written a biography of Sihanouk. And uh, in fact, in English, no one has since. Right. It's a book that's gone done well outside academic circles and not quite so well in academic why, circles. Why is that? Oh, I think academics... People like me like it. <laughs> <laughs> academics uh, thought that I should have spent longer interviewing more people, I think was basically what uh, the criticisms were. I wanted to get the book out because for 11 years, nearly 12, I'd been tucked away in the Office of National Assessments and I wanted to get a book out quickly after I had embarked on being a freelance writer. In both that book and in my most recent book, and in another book I wrote in 79 or published in 79 before Campuchia, mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to use the very detailed journals I've kept right. uh, over the years. When I first went to Cambodia in 59, 60, 61 in the Australian Embassy, to my regret, I didn't keep a journal. I, I did keep uh, clippings and some basic notes, but I didn't keep a journal. And I realized that that was a, a real mistake. And when I went back to Cambodia in 66 and Vietnam, I started keeping a daily journal. I, I wrote it up, not at night like Samuel Pepys, but in the morning when I thought things had come together and were, what was important and worth recording was clear in my mind. So that in relation to this latest book, in relation to the biography of Sihanouk, I had kept detailed accounts which gave some flavour, some detailed flavour to the story I was trying to tell. And, and Sihanouk was 
He was an entertaining character, to put it mildly. He had an extraordinary life. When I wrote the obituary that the Phnom Penh Post very courageously published uh, Mm -hmm. at the time of his death, I started by saying that he was a man of many talents, but many of them were flawed talents. (laughs) He was an extraordinary man, and he lived at extraordinary times. I think his problem was that and this is not only my judgment, that he regarded his views as the only ones that were worthwhile accepting. Right. He regarded his compatriots, the population of Cambodia, as children who should obey. And I venture the general observation that this seems to me to be a problem of Cambodian leaders generally over a long period of time. Sihanouk was a one-man band. The present leadership of Cambodia is a one-man band. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that alternatives would be other than one-man bands. Right, and of course you're referring to Prime Minister Hun Sen. Yes. And the last elections, uh, Cambodia was returned to a uh, one-party state. And since then, ties with China have grown closer, and some would argue that the uh, resentment among ordinary Khmer's uh, has also grown, particularly against the Chinese. And on top of that, There's a layer of discontentment that the economy may not be what it should and the outlook is most uncertain. I think the fact that there is resentment amongst Cambodians of the Chinese, I think we need to be precise about that. This is not just uh, an issue for Cambodia. The uh, long-term observer of Thai affairs, Bertel Linter, wrote an article some five or six years ago saying that uh, there was a new sort of Chinese that now had come into Thailand that excited resentment uh, and that this was striking because in Thailand, as indeed in Cambodia, there's long been intermarriage between Thais and Chinese and Cambodians and Chinese. In fact, uh, my oldest and closest friend, no longer alive, Prince uh, Siswat Pandravong, once said to me, you know, we're all, we've all got Chinese ancestry, a royal family too. Right. But the new Chinese, the Chinese who are particularly associated with Sihanoukville at the moment, mm-hmm. are the sort of Chinese that Bertolt Lindner was also referring to in relation to northern Thailand, in particular Chiang Rai and Chiang Mai. Chinese who were not coming to Thailand or coming to Cambodia to marry into the existing population but to set up their own activities, particularly commercial activities, and not to blend in with the community. They're a very separate breed, and uh, I think there are concerns out there that Chinese people populate the planet, uh, and a lot of Chinese people don't like what's coming out of China at the moment and what's happening in Beijing either. I think, uh, again, quoting Bertolt Linter, he made the remark that the Chinese he was talking about were giving offence in northern Thailand spoke Mandarin, which was not in fact the Chinese dialect spoken by most of the Cambodians themselves, or the Thais themselves in that particular instance. And I think you've probably got the same situation in in Cambodia. I don't spend enough time in, in Cambodia these days. I visit once a year, try to keep up with what's going on in the particular areas of interest that I have, the Mekong in particular, and uh, the work of Yuk Chang and the Documentation Centre of Cambodia. Um, Which, of course, has played a pivotal role 
in uh, regards to collecting in, uh, evidence and information that's oh, been I, used in the Khmer Rouge. I think it's an absolutely outstanding organisation, and <clears throat> I've got great admiration for Yuk Chung, the director of, of Documentation Centre. So I'm not somebody who really is particularly well attuned to what's going on in relation to the Chinese in Cambodia, except to observe that having visited Angkor on a regular basis, the overwhelming number of tourists there who are Chinese who seem to fly in for a 24-hour visit have totally altered the nature of visiting Angkor. Right, and of course the government's own numbers are that there are 200,000 mainland Chinese working full-time in Cambodia, which is uh, actually a much higher number than the British subjects in in, in India all those years ago when they were rapidly colonising. Well, I can understand at one realist's level of, of international relations why there is such a close relationship between the Cambodian government and China. I mean, this is not a new relationship. After 1997, when Hun Sen uh, reversed the policy he'd previously been following in relation to China and uh, became very closely associated with Cambodia, with, with China, um, China has been uh, an absolute financial lifeline to Cambodia. And Hun Sen has said repeatedly, China gives aid without strings. The Western governments expect you to behave in a particular way. Uh, and that's why we accept Chinese aid. I don't think it's surprising that Cambodia has backed China on the South China Sea. What would they do otherwise if uh, they're going to receive the aid and assistance they, they receive? You've done many, many decades in the field, an extraordinary career, and uh, I'm under the impression that you're not finished yet. Uh, at 83, where do you think you will go next? Well, I'm not uh, planning at the moment to write another book. I am following what's happening with the Mekong very closely. I think it is an issue of enormous importance. It's an importance that stems in part from the fact that what happens with the Mekong affects at very least some 66 million people who live along its course. And what we've said about the Mekong Delta already in our discussion today is just one aspect of a very serious issue for the future. On immediate terms, I'm engaged in revising my introductory history of Southeast Asia for its 13th edition. I remember studying at the university. <laughs> and uh, that's keeping me occupied enough for the moment. And on that note, Milton Osborne, thank you very much. Great pleasure to be with you, Luke.